Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Annette Love was born on March 27, 1961, and lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. At 7.15 a.m. on July 16, 1990, 29-year-old Annette's deceased body was discovered by two City of Milwaukee sanitation workers at the rear of 3426 North 4th Street, which has since been renamed Vail R. Phillips Avenue. She had been sexually assaulted and shot to death. Unfortunately, with very little to go on, the case would go cold. In 2010, Annette's daughter was re-interviewed and suggested a gang member by the name of Larnell Washington might be responsible. He had allegedly made crude remarks to her, put his hands on her, and bit her about two weeks before Annette was murdered. She then informed her mother and uncle, who allegedly equipped themselves with firearms and approached Larnell in a group with his fellow gang members. Her uncle allegedly punched him, and a gang member said, you can't come here beating on the CVLs and expect nothing to happen. Two weeks later, Annette's daughter saw members of the gang near their home. Annette was supposed to meet a friend at a nearby bar, but waited until the gang members were gone. Once they were gone, she left and was never seen alive again. An ex-girlfriend of Larnell's said that on the night of the homicide, he and another gang member were hanging out at their place. At some point, they left and returned with bloodied shirts chanting, she got shot. Between 2010 and 2011, DNA from the crime scene was tested and linked back to Larnell. In 2011, investigators obtained information about a co-conspirator by the name of Ronald Brelove, who was a suspect early on in the investigation. He had allegedly admitted to killing Annette with a 22 semi-automatic pistol and then sexually assaulting her. At some point, Larnell left Wisconsin and moved to Lacey, Washington, where he opened a barber shop in April 2021. On Saturday, February 19, 2023, Larnell was arrested and charged with first-degree reckless homicide in the death of Annette. While the DNA also linked Brelove, he will not be charged for her murder, most likely because he is already serving a life sentence in prison for multiple violent sexual assault charges and robberies dating back to 1991 and before. Bonnie Lynn Hayam was born on May 20, 1969, in Greenock, Scotland, to parents Robert and Patricia Pascuto. Her father, Robert, was in the U.S. Navy and served for 23 years. On September 12, 1987, Bonnie married Michael Ray Hyam in Jacksonville, Florida, and the couple had one child together named Aaron. In 1993, both Bonnie and Michael were working for his aunt, Eve Ann. 
She said that Michael was verbally abusive toward Bonnie while at work and even slammed her hand in the car door at one point. Bonnie had even confided in Evan that due to the abuse, she was planning to leave him. In order to prepare for that, she opened up a new bank account in her name and had the statements mailed to her work. However, he found out and was furious and ordered her to close it. After closing it, she began leaving money with friends and also put a deposit down on an apartment and attempted to enroll Aaron in a new preschool. On January 6, 1993, Bonnie arrived home from work around 7.30 p.m. with plans to go to Michael's Aunt Evan's house around 8 p.m. However, at 8.30 p.m., she called upset and crying, saying she and Michael had gotten into an argument and she couldn't come. The next day, Michael suspiciously called a co-worker and said that Bonnie had left the night before and they wouldn't be coming to work. That same day, police responded to a call from the Red Roof Inn in Jacksonville, Florida, where a maintenance worker had found Bonnie's purse in their dumpster containing $1,250 cash, along with her ID and credit cards. Police also found her car parked at the Jacksonville airport. When Michael was told about the discovery, he reported her missing. Strangely, Evan said he never seemed upset about her disappearance, nor did he care about finding her. He only seemed upset about her hiding the money. According to Michael, Bonnie left in the middle of the night, not bothering to pack her clothes or belongings. He said when she left, he assumed she was going to her mother's house. Instead of calling his mother-in-law to confirm her whereabouts, he called his own mother to come over and watch Aaron around 3 a.m., claiming he was going out to look for her. However, he returned empty-handed, and coincidentally, the duration he was out looking for her fit the time it would take to drive her car to the airport. When investigators found her car, they found it strange that the driver's seat was pushed so far back, way further than 5'3 Bonnie would have been able to drive comfortably. However, the placement would have been comfortable for Michael. Also, fresh shoe prints found on the side of the driver's door matched a shoe brand that Michael owned. Despite the motive and evidence found, there was nothing concrete that law enforcement could charge Michael with, especially since Bonnie was still missing. Michael eventually remarried and relocated to Tennessee and had also received life insurance from Bonnie's presumed death. He kept ownership of the house in Florida, and after moving, he began renting it out. Interestingly, he put a clause in the rental agreement that banned anyone from doing landscaping or digging in the backyard, and dogs were also banned from being back there. Michael's immediate family fought for the custody of Aaron but were denied. He was then placed in foster care, adopted by a loving family, and changed his name to Aaron Frazier. Sadly, the disappearance of his mother caused him PTSD and depression. In 2014, Aaron won a wrongful death lawsuit against his father and was awarded his childhood home. Aaron owned a lawn business and decided it was more cost-effective to redo his childhood home before selling or renting it out. He, his co-workers from his lawn business, and his brother-in-law helped with the renovation, which included digging up a non-working pool and outdoor shower in the backyard. During excavation, Aaron accidentally busted a pipe, causing a water leak. To fix it, he needed to remove a concrete slab underneath the outdoor shower. 
as he was shoveling dirt, he discovered a bag and accidentally broke it open. At first, he thought a coconut had rolled out and was confused as to why someone would bury that. However, upon a closer look, he realized he was actually holding a human skull and quickly realized that it likely belonged to his mother. The police were called and DNA confirmed it was indeed his mother's remains. Detectives found a 22 caliber shell casing near her remains that matched a rifle that Michael owned. The medical examiner said there was a specific injury in her pelvis that was consistent with a gunshot wound. On August 24, 2015, Michael was arrested for second-degree murder charges in North Carolina, where he now lived. When Michael was in prison awaiting his trial, two inmates testified that Michael openly admitted to murdering and burying his wife. At the time of her disappearance, the lead homicide detective didn't keep any records of the investigation. It would be four years before he sat down to write a large report on what he remembered of the case. Also, when Aaron was only three years old, he told a social worker that his dad had buried his mother in a hole. My dad killed my mom. Then he threw the pocketbook away in a different place, somewhere near our house in a dumpster. He buried my mom. We digged it, the hole. It makes me wonder why this didn't lead to a search warrant of his backyard at the time. In the end, 52-year-old Michael Hyam was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Deborah Leah Kerb was born in Fresno, California on August 23, 1956, to parents Royce and Bobby. In 1973, 17-year-old Deborah lived at 4018 North College Avenue in Fresno and attended Fresno High School. Friends and family described her as an excellent student who was always very cheerful. On New Year's Eve, 1973, she invited her boyfriend, Tim Robinson, and another couple to hang out at her house while her parents were away in Pismo Beach, California. She and Robinson were out picking up a few last-minute items and were running late. So she called her friend Susan Yoder and told her where she and her date, 17-year-old James Blaylock, could find the key to let themselves in. The teens listened to music and put together puzzles to welcome in the new year. Later in the evening, Blaylock's cousin and a friend, both in their 20s, stopped by but quickly left after seeing there were only two couples at the party. Once the clock passed midnight and it was officially 1974, the party wrapped up and Deborah said goodbye to her boyfriend and the other guest, and Blaylock drove them home. Robinson typically stayed over when her parents were out of town, but they were recently caught, so Robinson decided to go home out of respect for her father. The next day, she had plans to meet up with Robinson and his family, but she never showed up. Robinson kept calling her from a payphone, but she never answered. Finally, he got through, but it wasn't Deborah. Instead, it was her father, Royce, who broke the devastating news. They had found Deborah strangled to death with her own leotard. An investigation quickly began, and the police began looking into the people who had seen Deborah last, especially those who attended her party the night before. Everyone had a solid alibi except for Blaylock. 
When they interviewed him and his family, they realized he had an hour and a half unaccounted for after dropping off Susan and Robinson. He told detectives it took him so long to get home because it was raining, and he first went and stopped by a pool hall to play pool, but found they were closed. However, it was only a five-minute drive to his house. Investigators then theorized that after dropping the other kids off, Blaylock, who now knew where the spare key was, might have returned to Deborah's home, where he sexually assaulted and murdered her. However, without any concrete evidence, the case would go cold. In 2006, the Fresno County Sheriff's Office revisited the investigation and sent DNA from the crime scene off for advanced testing. Lo and behold, the DNA from the sexual assault kit matched James Blaylock, who, at this point, was a registered sex offender. Detectives then began tracking him down and didn't have to look far. Blaylock was in prison after committing a string of violent offenses, including sexual assaults on prostitutes. During the interview with him, he denied having anything to do with her murder and denied having sex with her. After being confronted with the DNA evidence, he changed his story and said he did have sex with her, but said it was consensual. He once again denied having anything to do with her murder. Even though they had the DNA, the case was still dismissed due to insufficient evidence. In December 2021, investigators sent the leotard used to strangle her off for advanced testing, and it matched Blaylock. This finally proved that not only did he sexually assault her, but he strangled her as well. Unfortunately, Blaylock would never serve time for the murder because he died in 2022 at the age of 66. Sadly, Deborah's parents passed away without ever learning the truth about who took their daughter's life. On August 3, 1980, two workers in Solano County, California, found a deceased woman's body in a cornfield in Dixon, California, around 20 miles southwest of Sacramento. The woman was estimated to be between 15 and 23 years old and died from multiple gunshot wounds. With no identification, she became known as Dixon Jane Doe. Twelve years later, in 1992, Dixon Jane Doe was identified as 21-year-old Holly Ann Campelia from New Jersey. Holly was born on December 1, 1958 in Onslow County, North Carolina, to parents Augustine and Sally. When Holly was in high school, she began doing drugs and battling mental health issues and would run away a total of five times before going off to college. The first time, she was found a month later walking on Route 70, about a mile away from the family home on Forest Hill Road in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. After high school, 18-year-old Holly enrolled at Glassboro State College. By the age of 21, she was still suffering from mental health problems and told her mom she wanted to get on with her life and see the world. So on June 10, 1980, Holly and her mom, Sally, were on their way to a counseling center when Holly jumped out of the car on Route 70 near the Sheraton Post Inn. Sally tried to grab her but was unable to hold on to her. She then reported the incident to the Cherry Hill Police Department and they added Holly to the missing persons database. A month later, her parents received a letter that was allegedly from Holly that said she was living with two guys and they should basically forget about her. 
Strangely, the return address wasn't even a real street, but was mailed from Sacramento, California. Holly was known to hitchhike, and that's most likely how she ended up in California. A few weeks before she was found, she had accidentally been dropped from the missing persons database. Unfortunately, her family didn't realize this until 1992, two years after she went missing. Once she was re-added, Solano County detectives were able to match her to the Dixon Jane Doe. However, her homicide remained an open investigation for the next 30 years. During the investigation, they discovered that Holly was last seen leaving a bar in Sacramento and was never seen alive again. In 2021, her family asked the Solano County Sheriff's Office to review the case and resubmit any original evidence for DNA analysis. This led to the discovery of male DNA. Officials submitted that DNA to another database with the San Mateo Crime Lab and discovered it belonged to 76-year-old Herman Lee Hobbs, who was already serving life in prison for an unrelated crime. He was serving a sentence of 25 years to life for the 2000 sexual assault of a 15-year-old girl in Yuba County and an additional 25 to life sentence he received in 2005 for the sexual assault and murder of 13-year-old Terry Pata. Terry vanished on the way home from her school in Rio Linda, a Sacramento suburb, in 1975. Her body was found several days later, stuffed in a drain pipe. Hobbs is also the suspect in at least five killings and was charged in the death of 29-year-old Brenda Ann Tucker, who went missing in 1994 from her home in Oroville. Loggers found her school in 2001 in Yuba County, and DNA identified her. Hobbs, who knew her family, was charged with her slaying in 2001, but a judge dismissed the case the next year due to lack of evidence. Detectives used a warrant to collect new DNA evidence from Hobbs and confirmed the DNA matched the DNA from Holly's crime scene. Authorities then issued an arrest warrant along with the removal order to have Hobbs transferred from state prison to Solano County Jail to face new charges for the murder of Holly. At this time, Hobbs has pleaded not guilty and is currently awaiting trial. Lainey Lee McGadney was born in 1954, and by the age of 28, she was a mother of four living in Columbia, Maryland. On March 19, 1982, Lainey was seen walking from her home on Oakland Mills Road to buy groceries at the Owen Brown Village Center. This was the last time she was ever seen alive. Witnesses later came forward and reported seeing Lainey being forced into a car by an unknown man. A couple of hours after her kidnapping, police dispatchers received a chilling 911 call telling them they needed to check out a location just off Route 32. How can I please emergency? Uh, if you were heading northbound on Route 32, and you took the first left after Hammond High, Go down the end of that street, take a left, go down the end of that street, and take a right. There's a little court. Look over the side of the curb, please. When police reached the vacant lot, now known as Water Lily Way, they discovered Laney's deceased body. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death in what was described as an overkill and left in a wooded area off Route 32 between Kindler Road and Hammond High School. 
DNA was collected from the crime scene, but in 1982, they lacked the necessary advancements in forensic technology to identify her killer. Despite investigators following every lead, no suspects could be identified, and the case went unsolved for the next 40 years. In 2020, a Howard County detective decided to send a discarded napkin that had been found at the crime scene off for forensic analysis, and the results matched to suspect 62-year-old Howard Jackson Bradbury Jr. Bradbury was then arrested at his home on Montgomery Street in Laurel, Maryland in May 2021. He was charged with Laney's murder, and on January 5, 2023, he was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in state prison. Bradbury is a former truck driver, and authorities are looking into the possibility of him being connected to other murders. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.